Hello, welcome to Cubs PS Plus, a Northside Numbers game, a weekly podcast that dives headfirst into the analysis of hot topics driving Chicago Cubs baseball. I'm your host, Mike Waller, a lifelong Cub fan, full-time baseball stat nerd, and sometime youth baseball coach. Cubs PS Plus is now proud to be part of the Bleacher Bunch Productions group, joining great shows like The Sun Ranto Show and Cup of Cubby Blue. For the remainder of this year, this podcast will cross-post on my feed, the Bleacher Bunch podcast feed, and my Patreon page. Starting in January, Cubs PS Plus will be exclusively found on the Bleacher Bunch podcast feed and my Patreon feed at cubspsplus.patreon.com, where you can support the show and always find ad-free episodes, along with other benefits, for as low as $1 a month. In addition to the podcast feeds, you can also find me on Twitter or X, Instagram, TikTok, Threads, Blue Sky, and YouTube, all at Cubs PS Plus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS Plus. Love the pot or hate it, please drop a review wherever it is you find your podcasts. If you've done that, thank you so much. Maybe you can share an episode with a friend. Welcome into episode 63, the Brian Schlitter episode of this podcast. Schlitter, an Oak Park native, broke in with the Cubs in 2010 and eventually pitched 71 games across the 2014 and 2015 seasons. The last few weeks have all been about Shohei Otani, and this past week was to an extent also. It's time for the offseason to start moving again, but it's still slow going. Only nine of the top 25 free agents per fan graphs have signed at this point. A couple big trades are done, but despite making no major league moves to date, the Cubs have a lot of options still available to improve the team. While we wait, let's evaluate the roster as it stands right now. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. So here we are a week after the Shohei Otani bombshell last Saturday when he signed with the Dodgers for a 10-year, $700 million contract that we later found out is really kind of a 10-year, $461 million contract in terms of present value. I put a correction out last week. When scrambling that day, we were trying to figure out what the terms of the contract were and how exactly the deferred money works. I had an explanation from a couple of good sources. One of them had used the incorrect math. I put a, a disclaimer on the front of the episode. So if you didn't, if you listened to that episode before I put the disclaimer out, I apologize. Now that we know the actual structure of the contract, Shohei Otani deferred 680 of the $700 million, which means over the next 10 years, the Dodgers will be paying him $2 million a year, which frees up a lot of money in their budget. It's not, though, a $2 million hit against the competitive balance tax. For that purpose, you apply a bunch of calculations, figure out the current value of the money that's deferred outside the 10-year contract window, and that amounts to about a little over $44 million dollars per year, add the $2 million to that, the Dodgers are going to take a CBT hit each year while they have Otani for or $46.1 million, basically. That's interesting. There have been a lot of guys with deferred money. Um, Max Scherzer has deferred money with the Nationals. Steven Strasburg has a bunch of deferred money. The Dodgers have already deferred $115 million on the Mookie Betts contract. $57 million, I believe, on the Freddie Freeman contract. So the Dodgers are stacking up some debts down the road. Now, there are a few things that I've seen a lot of talk this week about, well, why doesn't everybody just do that and reduce the tax set? Well, one, everybody could. It's exclusive, or it's explicitly defined in the comp- uh, collective bargaining agreement how that deferred money is going to be handled. You can defer pretty much as much of it as you want. There are a few things that have to go into play, though. Now, you have to pay each player the minimum annual salary at minimum. So it's 755000 I think, last year. Um, so every player would have to make at least that much during the seasons that they're under contract. Then the team does ultimately have to pay that money. So the, the day the contract, the Shohei Otani contract ends, you know, 2034, that contract's up the Dodgers will owe him $680 million. Now that'd be paying him in future dollars that aren't worth as much as today's dollars are, but they do have to pay him that money. And so if you're a team that decides to do that, let's say you want to have a five-year window, throw as much massive talent in there as you can and defer a bunch of the contract money, that's fine. You can totally do that. The team though is going to have to pay that money down the road. So, you know, I don't think they overlap quite as enough, but I know the Mookie Betts and Shohei Otani deferrals are going to overlap a little bit. Um, maybe one year of Freddie Freeman. Let, let's assume one year of Freddie Freeman overlaps with 
some Mookie Betts and Shohei Otani deferrals, you know, Shohei Otani is going to get $68 million every year after that contract's up. Mookie Betts is going to get about 11 and a half and Freddie Freeman say about six. So that would mean that if there's a given year where they have to pay all three of them, you know, 68 plus 11 and a half plus six, you know, you're, you're talking right around 85, $86 million. It's a lot of money. Now it's, that money's not going to count against the team's competitive balance tax threshold for those years, but that is still, those are still real dollars that the ownership group has to send out. And I know, you know, obviously these teams are owned by corporate conglomerates, really wealthy people, whatever, you know, owned by billionaires basically. And the franchises themselves are worth billions of dollars, but that is still budget that's going to have to be laid out for those players. So at some point that could be, you know, it's, it's kind of akin to like a, a debt obligation or an upgrade to a stadium or some other, you know, non-baseball salary structural improvement. You know, it's money that has to be spent. It's money that's going to affect the bottom line for those teams in those years. Now, as I say all the time, budgeting and how much money you spend on a player is a choice. The competitive balance tax threshold is a choice. You can go over it. You can go over the second threshold. You can go over the third threshold. The Yankees and Mets were both over the third threshold last year, and that's fine. Neither team made the playoffs, so that turned out to maybe not be the best investment. And they took a a 10 draft slot hit in terms of lowering their draft position by 10 spots for being over that third level. But that's entirely a choice. So teams can do this. Teams can stack all that up. But I think the fact that you're going to stack that up, the fact that you're going to have to pay those dollars at the same, at some point down the road, it's going to kind of inherently limit how much any team I think is actually going to use the deferral process. And then the third thing, the player has to want it. You know, Shohei Otani was fine with it. it. He made it very clear it wasn't about the money in the contract for him, which certainly is easy to say when he's expected to be, to make 40, 50, maybe more million dollars per year just through endorsements. And he made $30 million last year. And apparently he's been making, you know, millions, he's been making millions of dollars in Japan before he came over. So, you know, he's set. And a lot of these players are set, but, you know, sports careers are short. You know, I, I can work in tech and I can make good money and I'm going to work for 30 years, 40 years, whatever. And my income is going to grow, but it's not at those levels. But, or if you're, let's say you're an actor, if you're a good enough actor, you're going to find work for potentially decades. Um, athletes, not so much. I mean, they they make a ton of money. This is not a, you know, play the sad violin for athletes thing here, but not every player is going to want to defer all that money. You know, if the looking at the signings here, you know, Sonny Gray was signed by the Cardinals for three years, $63 million. He, per my understanding, I don't think there was any deferred money in that contract, but, you know, Sonny Gray has never had the huge, massive payday. I'm sure he's doing quite well for himself, but he may not want to take $20 million and defer it down the road. A lot of guys want that money now. I mean, in terms of there's a bunch of back and forth we've heard this week about, you know, do you want the money now so you can invest it and start earning on those dollars? Do you want it later so maybe you can move your residence to a place where there's less state income tax? I mean, there's a thousand ways to do it. But in any event, that's how that works. I wanted to go over it once since I kind of posed it up last week on the podcast. The The method and the way it worked, I had correct. I just had some of the underlying numbers wrong. It looked at that point like the CBT hit on Otani's money would, was going to be closer to like $60 million than forty six. Um, but now Shohei's got his place, time to move on. I think a lot of us were expecting to see some flurry of activity once Otani was gone. I mean, there was, he was the one big fish holding up everything. You know, if you want, if you were going to go big on Otani and you got him, maybe you wouldn't go on Yoshinobu Yamamoto. Maybe you wouldn't go for Cody Bellinger. Maybe you wouldn't go for Blake Snell, some of these other guys. And so now the next one up is Yamamoto. There have been a couple trades. I mean, the, the Soto trade happened. He got traded by the Padres to the Yankees this week. I don't know that it's final yet, but it looks like the Dodgers are going to trade for Tyler Glass now, who had been rumored to the Cubs. Interestingly enough, baseball doesn't have sign-in trades, but the Dodgers made the, apparently making the trade contingent upon Glass now signing an extension. I think that got hammered out 
yesterday. I haven't seen that it's official. I'm sure there are medicals that have to happen. Once that's established, then they'll finish out the trade. But the Cubs, you know, continue to do nothing. And if you're on social media at all, I mean, that's a major source of consternation. I get it. I think we're all feeling the same way. Right now, there are only three teams in Major League Baseball that have not added, have not made any major league level moves. The Twins, the Cubs, and the Blue Jays. There are five other teams that have not yet signed a free agent, but those teams have at least made major league level trades. The Red Sox, the Mariners, the Rockies, the Marlins, and the Padres. Everybody else has made some moves. Now, I've, I, it's gotten to the point, it's gotten almost comical. Every time some mid-level or bottom feeder team signs a you know, bullpen depth arm, you're like, come on, Cubs, come on, Jed, wake up. And the reality is there's still a lot on the table. So right now, if, if you look at the free agent tracker on fan graphs, they had mapped out their top 25 free agents. Only nine of those guys have signed so far. You know, out of the top five, three of the top five are available for the top 10. The the top guys available at the moment per Fangraphs rating are Jordan Montgomery, Cody Bellinger, Blake Snell, Matt Chapman, Marcus Stroman, Clayton Kershaw, Brandon Belt. Um, goes on down from there. But those are the guys that are available. And so I, I want to take this time, since the Cubs haven't done anything, um, I see a lot of speculation about you know, attitudes ranging from the way I feel. I think the Cubs are going to make moves. I think the Cubs are going to spend money. I think the Cubs are evaluating a variety of trades. I think they're in discussions with free agents. And this stuff just takes time. There seems to be a sense sometimes that Jed can just snap his fingers and make a move happen. Um, that's not always true. Sometimes the free agent is still wanting to field offers from multiple teams or wait a little bit longer and see if some teams that miss out on other free agents want to jump into the bidding. If you're talking trades, you know, it sounds like the Cubs have been talking some trade, had talked some trades with Tampa for Glass now. It sounds like they're talking some trades with Cleveland Guardians, potentially for any combination of Shane Bieber, Josh Naylor, and Emmanuel Classe. So there's there are a lot of things on the table. Those teams are also talking with other teams. So, you know, there, there's just a lot going on. These things take time. But the, the opinions range from I think they're going to be okay I think they'll make moves to they're just not going to do anything they hired Craig Council and Council's job is to get more with less and so the Cubs are going to give him less um, so as I stated I think the Cubs are going to make moves but this episode's going to be kind of a devil's advocate of that position what happens if they don't where do the Cubs stand today what does their roster look like right now um, I think to start we have to look back at 2023 the Cubs missed the playoffs by two games. They were very, very close. And the season had a lot of, in some ways they overachieved and in some ways they underachieved. I mean, the Cubs seemed like they had a playoff bid just about wrapped after the Giants series. I went and saw them on Labor Day. I saw Justin Steele throw an absolute gem against the Giants. Cubs swept the Giants. They went into the series, first series against the Diamondbacks with a four-game lead for the second wildcard spot. Certainly, obviously nothing was clinched because they didn't make it, but it looked like they had everything in front of them. It looked like they were in really good position. They didn't make it. So you have to kind of look and see, and I want to step back and take a look at the big picture. So I know what the team was at the end of the year, but the team that existed at the beginning of the year matters too. And that's going to go into how I evaluate the Cubs the way I do. And I guess I'll start this way. I think the Cubs, if the season started tomorrow using Nothing but players that are currently in the organization. I'm not saying it has to be, you know, the end of the season's, you know, 26-man roster with subs in for the free agents that have left. People who are in the organization right now, I think the Cubs probably have something pretty close to a 500 team. I think it's an 80 to 83 or 4 win team as it stands right now. I've seen a lot of speculation that the Cubs would be a 72, 75, maybe even worse team at this point. But I'm going to walk through why I don't think that's the case. So let's start with the offense. So I've talked about it. Everybody's talked about it. The Cubs need to add a couple bats. The Cubs don't have much lefty power. Cody Bellinger is no longer here. Jamer Candelario is no longer here. And the Cubs need to, in theory, replace the production of those guys and improve. Well, let's look at what the Cubs were last year. 
the Cubs in 2023 were a top 10 offense. You know, depending on what measure you want to look at, most measures had the Cubs right around ninth, eighth, tenth, depending on where you look and what stats you're using. And that's a top 10 offense that maybe feels a little misleading. They were a little bit boomer bust. But let's look into why I think the Cubs have reason to be optimistic even without Bellinger and Candelario. So last year, we talked at great length many, many times about the roster construction at the start of the year. You know, Seiya Suzuki was on the disabled list. Uh, the Cubs had, you know, some young guys they could have given chances to, and they didn't. And some of that may be why David Ross is gone. It's hard hard to know going back who made what decisions, who was in agreement with whom, and all, all that sort of thing. But the Cubs last season gave 363 plate appearances to Eric Hosmer and Trey Mancini. I never expected Mancini to be as bad as he was. In fact, I think I actually credited the signing at the time. I thought it was a pretty decent pickup for the money they spent. But that sort of served a double hit. So those two combined for right around a 70 WRC plus Mancini posted a 74 and Hosmer was 67. And while they were doing that, that meant that took roster spots away from other guys. So Christopher Morrell had a really nice year last season and he wound up only playing in 107 games. You know, he was down crushing the ball at Iowa for like a month plus before he got called up. And with the Cubs not starting with, three outfielders even on the active roster when they opened the season. They were trying to patchwork right field while Saya was out with Miles Mastroboni and Trey Mancini and Patrick Wisdom. You know, they they could have given Nelson Velasquez a shot. They could have given Morrell some run in the outfield. Um, but they didn't. And so the the Cubs didn't play the kids. They missed some opportunity there. Yes, as I noted, Saya Suzuki missed a month of the season. Cody Bellinger missed a month. So what we saw was we saw that the Cubs were able to win some games. They actually played pretty well when Bellinger was out. That's when, you know, to our friend, friend of the pod, Cody Delmendo, it was the summer of Mike Talkman at that point. They were able to get a lot done. And so this year, if as we look forward, if, if we use the roster as it stands today, there is no Hosmer or Mancini. There are, the Cubs have not brought in so-so, subpar, mediocre veterans, whatever, to to flush out this roster. So if they come in today, the, several positions are set. Ian Happ's playing left field, say Suzuki's in right field, Dansby Swanson's at shortstop, Nico Horner's at second, Jan Gomes and Al, Albert, not Albert, Miguel Amaya are catching. So the holes are center field, which last year was largely Mike Talkman and Cody Bellinger. First base... You know, right now would would probably look to be Matt Mervis, Patrick Wisdom. You know, there there are plenty of options there. And third base, I would certainly hope it would be Christopher Morrell at this point. He's played third base a lot in the Dominican League, and yesterday ended his season in Lydom. So he's coming back stateside to kind of probably get a month and get ready for spring training. And so. You know, if I were going to map out the Cubs roster from here, you know, it looks like it's probably see how things go in spring training. I know PCA is down in Arizona working with Dustin Kelly on his swing and his offense. And that's, we saw at the end of the year, he he did not fare well and he was overmatched by fastballs. But we also have to remember it was 19 plate appearances throughout a long baseball season. Plenty of guys, I mean, if you're a full-time starter, 19 plate appearances is Five games, four games, five games, depending on how many runs you're scoring. So guys go through a four or five game stretch where they're getting dominated by the fastball. It just, it happens. It's part of baseball. Over the course of 162 games, that washes itself out. It's not a big deal. But when those are, when that stretch is the only thing you get in the major leagues that season, it it certainly leaves an impression. So this could be, you know, again, I'm not saying the Cubs are not going to make moves for sake of this podcast. We're going to say that they don't. If they don't make moves, center field probably looks like some combination of Alexander Canario, Pete Crow Armstrong, and Mike Talkman. I would prefer to see Mike Talkman as the fourth outfielder and kind of rove around where needed. So I'd love to see PCA and Canario fight it out. You know, maybe whoever has the best spring training gets a shot. Um, PCA's defense is amazing. He's fast. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really not worried about him. I think he's going to be a very good player. 
He's pretty much consensus top 15, top 10 prospect in baseball, depending on where you look. But they all have him in that same range. I mean, everybody thinks he's good. His his glove is amazing and probably plays at like a largely because of the defense. He's going to be kind of a three war player as his floor. Now, how well is he going to hit? I don't know. Like I've seen comps to Kevin Kiermeyer. Kevin Kiermeyer is not you know Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, Barry Bonds, but Kevin Kiermeyer is a guy who's had a lot of good seasons, amazing defensively for a really long time. He's put together. I think. He's a, he's a free agent right now, but I assume he'll sign somewhere and next year. I think it'll be his 14th season in the majors. So the floor plays, the defense and the speed will play. You look at first base. That's a little iffier right now. And one of the things, you know, talking about the David Ross not playing the kids. In the moment, I could always kind of justify maybe why they weren't. You know, they're in a pennant race. You know, Matt Mervis was up for a while, 99 played appearances and, and struggled. He did have some stretches, though, where he hit the ball pretty hard. The Cubs have now, two seasons in a row, missed real opportunities to find out who Matt Mervis is. And so now it's 20, we're heading into 2024 and nobody knows. Some people believe in him. You know, I see the offense. I mean, he crushes the ball at AAA. He has the entire time. The Cubs sent him back down. He kept hitting bombs. He kept hitting the ball hard. What's he going to be in the majors? I don't know. Plenty of guys have come up, struggled, gone down, come back up, and found success. Anthony Rizzo did. Now, is Matt Mervis going to be Anthony Rizzo? I don't know. But the point is, we don't know. And we don't know because he was never really given a shot because we were given 363 plate appearances to Eric Hosmer and Trey Mancini. So now the Cubs are evaluating, you know, do they trade for Josh Naylor? Do they sign Reese Hoskins? Do they look at some of the other available guys to play first base? I don't know. I think if you had a clear read on Matt Mervis, I think you'd know what you want to do. You'd either say, you know, hey, we think Matt's a, Matt's a dude, and you bring in like another guy to share time, platoon. They can rotate through, you know, defensively. DH. Matt Mervis is not. I don't think any kind of star defensively. Or you would know at this point. You know what? He's he's not a guy. He's he's not somebody we're going to be able to put in there. And then you know you have to go make a trade or sign Reese Hoskins or do something like that. But we don't know. And so now's the time. I mean, at this point, I talk about this from time to time. The prospects have value in multiple ways. They can obviously make you look like an attractive growing team with a good future. They also can be trade value. They can also come up and be depth on your bench. They can come up and be starters. And that you have to get value from them somewhere. And the Cubs have a lot of guys who are, like they have six top 100, pretty much depending on where you look. They probably have another six or seven guys that are very close to top 100. You know, you get to the difference between prospect 80 and the prospect 150 is not that big. So you want to get value out of these guys somehow. Get them up on the bench. Get them up, use them in the starting lineup. Trade them, whatever. But the Cubs now have wasted two years with Matt Mervis haven't traded them, haven't really used him at the big leagues, haven't invested in him, giving him a long run to you know see if he can build some success. And that value is dripping away. He's already a first base only DHC kind of prospect. So that limits, you know, that's why you, you weren't seeing Matt Mervis on top 100 lists for the most part. So that value has got to come somewhere. And the longer the Cubs just leave him in AAA to hit baseballs, his value just drops and drops and drops and drops. You know, you bring in a couple more first basemen to put in front of him, prioritize Patrick Wisdom in front of him playing first base, and you're just letting his value go away because every year he gets a little bit older. And as we talk, as we saw when we talked to, you know, Greg Huss when he came on the podcast a few weeks ago, talked about his bash metric. One of the cool things about bash is it factors in the player's age as related to the player's level in the minors. So, you know, a, a 21-year-old kid playing AAA is off the charts because 21-year-olds don't play in AAA very often. If you're 28 and you're playing high A ball, you know, that you might be having a massive season, but you're playing against, you know, kids six, seven, eight years younger than you are. And so Matt Mervis is getting older and prospect status tends to go away about, you know, 25, 26, 27, you know, and... 
so the Cubs are just kind of letting that drip. So I, th- I think this offseason, I think the Cubs need to either plan on giving Matt Mervis a run in the bigs or they really probably need to sh- ship him out. Not entirely. I mean, I always root for the players and I want to see, I love to see guys succeed. And so I know that I want, I want Mash Mervis to go have success somewhere. But I also know that, but I also know that he's 27 and he's not getting younger. So as he comes up, he's going to lose more and more pro- prospect status. He's going to be less and less attractive to teams in trade. He's already not the kind of prospect that would get a massive return back. But it's time to do something with him. Either let him move off to another organization, get a shot, or give him a shot here. So I would like to see him at first base. There are some other guys in the system that could potentially play first base. You look at third base, I talked about morale. I think there are some additional players that maybe could push later in the year for playing time at third base. When you know, Matt Shaw's coming up, he had a huge year after getting drafted last year. Ended the season in double A. If he goes and starts this, you know, has a good spring, opens in double A AA or triple A, continues to just mash baseballs, at some point he's going to get a shot in Chicago. So I think the offense can be okay. I mean, the offense is not going to make strides forward unless a lot of the kids hit, but that's the variance. If PCA comes in and has a Corbin Carroll type year and contends for NL Rookie of the Year, that's a big win in center field. You're going to get an amazing defense. He's shown in the minor leagues. He can hit for average. He can hit for power. And to be able to put that out there, I'm not saying I expect that this season, but that's the range, right? Like he can give you good defense in a weak bat, but he could also wind up giving you good offense. Alexander Canario has shown he can hit. He's hit through the minors. He came back really well from his devastating injury last offseason to play the last month plus of the season in the minors. And, you know, he did some good things in Chicago before the season was over. He didn't get many chances again because they weren't playing the young kids. But he's a guy with upside. You know, Mervis has upside. I mean, there are just a good amount of options. And I think also, I know that the, you know, the, Tucker Barnhart signing got a lot of criticism last year. Tucker Barnhart did not have a good year, wound up getting released in the middle of the season. But I, they signed Tucker Barnhart because nobody knew what Miguel Amaya was going to be last year. Going into the season, he hadn't been healthy in four years, and he was coming off you know, Tommy John surgery. The end of last year, he was able to get back and, and play and hit, but he didn't really catch. He didn't really catch until spring training. So it made sense to you know start him in the minors, see, see how he was going to respond. Um, but that's another guy. So now as we look at this, I don't know that young Gomes is going to have as good a year as he had last year. He was really good. He was, we talked about it a number of times. He was really, really good in the clutch, like unbelievably good, well beyond his career norms. Good. Some of that's going to regress to the mean and that's fine. But I think as we see the season go on, I think we're going to start to see going from a heavy Gomes with some Amaya to more of a split. And I bet by the end of the season, as, as long as he stays healthy and plays well, Miguel Amaya is going to be the primary catcher in Chicago. And he's got a much better bat than Gomes or Barnhart. So that's another place where you can theoretically add some offense. Um, I think the guys that are back, you know, if say a Suzuki can be healthy, I think he's a 30 to 35 home run guy. He was really good in the second half once he came back, got back to the lineup after taking the, you know, the five games off to kind of do a mental reset. Mike Talkman was good. I don't think Mike Talkman, you know, it's not a good thing for the Cubs if Mike Talkman has to be the starting center fielder for long stretches of time. He's a good player. He's shown value across multiple seasons with multiple teams, but, you know, at this point in his career, he shouldn't be the starting center fielder. So I'm hoping that PCA or Alexander Canario can step up. I think Ian Happ, you know, he was a little more streaky last year, but the numbers came out as good or better as they were the year before. I think. Ian Happ has shown who he is. He's an above-average outfielder with a pretty good glove for left field. And that's a decent place to be. His floor is really high. Dansby Swanson, similar. You know, he did not have his best offensive season last year, but he still hit, you know, 20-plus home runs. He needs probably to step back a little bit, get a little bit more rest. You know, I think him wearing down at the end of the season was one of the things that happened. You know, he, he did miss time with that injury, missed a month. But once he came back, he literally played every single game until the last day of the season. And you just got to mix guys in, get him rest, a little rest here and there. I mean, you could just see that he was, whether he was, you know, he's not a guy who presses. He's been through these situations before. But he just, 
you know, you have to figure it out and you want to keep guys fresh. And the Cubs didn't do that last year with Dansby Swanson. So I think you can get a little more out of him. His glove is amazing. His glove is going to be there. I would expect him to hit better. So I think that's one of the things that can happen. Now back to the Hosmer and Mancini thing. We're going to talk about pitching here in a second, but by eating that money, you know, Hosmer was league minimum. That was not a big deal, but between Barnhart and Mancini, the Cubs ate like that was about what about $10 million that had they not signed those two players, maybe they'd have been better off to start with or those three players. Maybe they'd have been better off to start with, but then they would have had a little bit more in the budget. And when they went at the trade deadline, they did pick up Jamer Condelario and they got Jose Quas, but maybe they would have had enough money in there to get another arm, another, maybe two more arms. So that's where those decisions, you know, Jed likes to talk about stacking good decisions on good decisions because every decision you make is going to impact things that happen further down the road. So you make multiple bad signings. You know, the Cubs were carrying the rest of Jason Hayward's $23 million plus the $10 million from $10.5 million, basically about $11 million from Hosmer, Mancini, and Barnhart. That's $34 million of basically dead money. And 10 of those are going to hit this year. So if you look at the pitching, you know, the Cubs have a top 10 offense. Ideally, they find some of that power, but, you know, I don't want to go all Billy Bean with Moneyball here, but there is some ability by giving Morrell more playing time, getting Canario, PCA, get some of those young guys involved, give Matt Mervis a shot. You've got a chance to make up some of that production. Now, a lot of things have to go right for this team to really build and grow and be better than they were last season to go in as the division favorite to get up more around 90, 91 wins to potentially win the division. I, you know, I don't know if the team as it's set does that, but I think this team as it, as it is today would probably be roughly a 500 team. And we go to the pitching, you know, again, the Cubs had, were top 10 in pitching last year. The Cubs had, the Cubs had what they needed. They just didn't do enough in the margins. We talked about that all season, losing close games, not, you know, holding leads early in the season, having an atrocious May and a bad, you know, and second half of September. You know, those things killed the Cubs. They were great. The, the middle months of the season, they were great. They played at like a 95-win pace for a really long time. And when you look at the pitching, the Cubs were, you know, using some fan graphs ratings again, little variance depending on what categories you look at, what statistical measures you choose to, to rank on. But, you know, the Cubs were above average with starting pitching. They were roughly eighth. They were 15th in relievers, relief pitching. So they were certainly above average. You know, starters pitched the majority of your innings, and they were top 10 in baseball, and they were right at dead center average in relief pitching. And we saw last year the four guys that Ross trusted were very good until they wore out late in the season. But when you break this down, so let's go to the starting rotation. So the Cubs had a top 10 you know, starting pitching numbers last year. And when you really look across the season, they never really had a solid, consistent five guys. You know, to open the season, Drew Smiley was pitching too much. I'm glad he's going to be in the bullpen this year or should be in the bullpen this year. You know, Kyle Hendricks missed the first month of the season. Jamison Tyone was awful to start, had a good second half. And you look at that, so the Cubs really only had two or three guys going at any one time. You know, to start the season, Justin Steele and Marcus Stroman pitched really well. And Drew Smiley got off to a really good start, too, while other guys struggled. You know, Wisniewski couldn't quite stick. Um, you know, they, they had some struggle with that fifth spot. When Hendricks came back, it kind of solidified it. But, you know, you get towards June, and Marcus Stroman, you know, Marcus Stroman missed over a month. He missed almost – he missed most of the second half of the season. I mean, he didn't throw – he didn't throw even six innings in a single start Again, after July 15th, he didn't throw seven after June 20th. He just missed a ton of time. And once he got that blister in London, came back, and then he had a just a rough stretch of giving up just huge amounts of runs. He had like a 90 RA across like five or six starts before he went on the injured list. And I think, I mean, he was wound up being hurt the rest of the year. And I think a big part of that was I think he was pitching hurt, you know, when he was struggling like that. So we talk about one of the things I hear about the Cubs a lot is they've got to replace Bellinger and they got to replace Stroman just off the top to get back to kind of where they were last year. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Replacing Bellinger is hard. He had a huge year. 
You know, he did, he missed a month, so that drops his numbers a little bit. But Strowman, I mean, he was amazing in the first half. But if you look at the t- totality of his season, that may not be that hard to replace. <clears throat> they may have that internally. The other thing with Drew Smiley is, you know, he hasn't thrown big season starter innings since like 2016. He had a bunch of arm injuries. He's been in and out of the bullpen. And I think at this point in his career, he's not getting back to being that guy. He can be very effective. He can go out and have, we saw it started last year. He can go out and have a run of good starts. But he's not going to be, he shouldn't be, he can't be a full season starter. You know, he starts getting up over 100 innings and it starts getting dicey. That's when he he was really, really struggling until he got put in the pen late in the year. So get him out of the rotation. You know, Kyle Hendricks missed a month, and Kyle Hendricks comes with some risk. Like, he was really good once he came back last year. If he keeps that up and continues pitching like that guy, he's a pretty good back end of the rotation guy, maybe even a three. Maybe not a three, but he's, he's certainly a, a solid four and an excellent five in your rotation. <clears throat> so, you know, what can the Cubs do? You know, the Cubs want to have a healthy five guys and get more consistency out of that rotation. I think Justin Steele really stretched himself out last year. I know he struggled a little bit at the end. He was way beyond his career highs and in innings, but now he's done that. Now he knows what it takes to pitch to that level over the course of a season. He's going to be stronger. He made himself stronger by pitching that many innings. And I I think there's going to be a lot to like with Steele. Um, he's now really, he's he's been that guy now for a season and a half. So I don't, you know, as long as he stays healthy and continues to have that bullet spin on that fastball and, you know, work his pitches the way he has, you know, I think he's every reason to think he may not be a Cy Young contender, but there's every reason to think he's legitimately a top top of the rotation starter on just about any team at this point. They don't really have a clear number two. So that's, you know, when we talk about what the Cubs want to do, I would love to see them get, you know, Yamamoto. I would love to see them get Shota Imanaga, potentially trade for Shane Bieber, you know, sign Jordan Montgomery. Like some of those guys, somebody to put, up with Steele at the sort of the top of that rotation. I think Jamison Tyone is going to come back well this year. He pitched pretty well in the second half of last season, even knowing that, you know, he was still getting that extra arm side run on his fastball that was causing him problems. And he said throughout the second half of the season that was going to be an offseason fix. So I'm sure he's getting that worked out. I mean, it sounded like he and Tommy Hadovy had a had a plan. So if he can get that cleaned up, like he, he's going to be a good, solid number three starter. I think he's going to have a good year, you know, probably in the ERA and the low threes. I think there's a lot to like. And then the Cubs have, again, it's potential, right? If the Cubs don't bring in anybody else, there's now a path for some of the young players, some of the young pitchers to take spots in the rotation. I think Hayden Wesneski learned a lot about himself last year in terms of what it takes to be a starter. I'm still pretty optimistic about him being potentially successful as a starting pitcher. We saw a really good run from Jordan Wicks at the end of the season. Ben Brown looked like he was going to be the next one up before he got hurt in August. I think there's a lot to like there. Cade Horton is absolutely flying through the system, and I don't think he'll be with the Cubs to start, but I I think if he stays healthy and continues to be successful the way he has, I think he will absolutely pitch in Chicago in 2024. So, you know, again, if the Cubs don't bring anybody in, they're probably going to have to go um, Steele at the one, Tyone at the two, Hendricks at the three, and then you're probably looking at two guys out of Wisniewski and Assad and Wicks and Brown and eventually Horton. So there's potential there. You know, is it rock solid guaranteed? No, that's why we want the Cubs to bring in guys and why I think they will. But that does start to give some of these young guys a chance to come up and, and show themselves. And with the bullpen, you know, the bullpen had a lot of struggles. Those four guys were really good. Michael Fulmer will not be back this year. He's a free agent. And he had Tommy John surgery after the season. He's not going to pitch in 2024. Um, Julian Merriweather looks very good. Albert Alzali had a very good season last year. Mark Leiter Jr., he'll be back assuming he can, you know, assuming it was fatigue that cost him his, his split finger um, that he uses to just absolutely wreck left-handers. You know, he should be back. And I don't see, you know, why he can't have success. He's a guy who bounced around forever as a starter and a long man, but Cubs found a couple things, found that split, found a couple things he throws really well in in short bursts and turned him into a, excuse me, a good solid reliever. But they have to build on that. So one of the big issues they had last season 
was growing the pen. We talked about it a lot. You know, one thing, because the Cubs played so many tight games, because they were chasing the Brewers the entire season, chasing the playoffs, and they had they had lost so much ground in May that they had to make it up. There was a lot of pressure to just get today's win, get today's win, get today's win. And they did that at the expense of really developing a bullpen. They should have been taking some of those opportunities to get Daniel Palencia more work, you know, bring maybe bring Luke Little up earlier. Just get other guys in. So at the end of the season, it was pretty much the four. It was Fulmer and Azalai and Merriweather and Leiter. And then they started mixing in Jose Quas once they got him. Jose Quas was already on the heading towards overworked in Kansas City before the Cubs traded for him. And I think there's a lot to like there, but then the you know, the Cubs continued to use him heavily. So he was like everybody else. He was past his career highs in earning or in winnings or in, in in innings. He was worn out. And so that's a decent starting point for this pen. So you'll have Azalai, Merriweather, Quas, and Leiter. I think we saw some good things out of Luke Little, some good and some bad. You know, you get rookies up, they're not a all going to just tear it up from the start. Daniel Palencia's stuff is just tremendous. He's just got to get more command. The Cubs have added Michael Arias and Bailey Horn to the 40-man roster. So they've got guys on the roster who hopefully can step up and take bullpen roles. And, you know, I think the Cubs need to add a couple impact arms at the back end of that pen. They don't necessarily have to go get a closer. I see a lot of people, you know, wanting the Cubs to go get Josh Hader. Josh Hader's probably getting, you know, $20 million a year for four years. Maybe something like the Edwin Diaz contract last year, five one hundred, you know, something $20 million for four, three to five years. If the Cubs get Josh Hader, great. I mean, he's he's an amazing closer. He's one of the best in the game for a reason. But I don't necessarily think they have to go that direction. I think you can always get a closer at the deadline if you need to. I really like the idea of a trade with the Guardians for Class A. Pretty sure he has four years of team control left. So he's already really good would be around for a while. He and Adbert at the, and Merriweather at the back end of that bullpen would be absolutely nasty. Um, but if they don't bring anybody in, they've got some arms that can potentially do some damage. I mean, you know, Caleb Killian, I, you know, he's kind of losing his prospect status to a large extent. He's struggled when he's come up. But he's a guy that was looked at potentially down the road as a bullpen arm. You know, if, if he has some good pitches, if he can command those and work in shorter bursts, you know, throw a little, throw a little harder, Focus on his best pitches. Maybe he's somebody who can help in the bullpen. Um, I don't know. Michael Rucker's still around. I know I'm not a huge fan of his. Keegan Thompson had really kind of a lost year last year. It'll be interesting to see if the Cubs can get him back to where he was in 2022. But when you look at this, you know, I think there's every chance that the Cubs starting rotation could be honestly pretty close to as good as the rotation was last year. You won't have that Stroman, but the Cubs effectively didn't have Stroman in the second half when they played some of their best baseball. You know, the Steele, Hendricks, Tyone, if those guys can carry the load and a couple of the kids emerge, maybe they're fine. Again, you know, I want the Cubs to make those additions. But that's kind of where I see the team. And I unfortunately, they have the dead money. I think the Cubs are going to go over, certainly go over the first level of the CBT. I could definitely see them going over the second level of the CBT. You know, go spend $50, $60 million on players this year. Leave themselves some... I, I don't think they're going to want to cross over the third level. I don't think Jed's going to want to take that draft slot hit at this point. But you go up and leave yourself 10 to $20 million under that third threshold, that gives you some ability to go make moves at the deadline and, and potentially get... You know, if, if you're in that position the Cubs were in 2016, you need that one more piece. You know, It gives you a chance to go get that. So that's kind of where I see him sitting right now. I think right now the Cubs are a pretty average 500 team. Now, if we turn the clock back to last season before the Cubs added Dansby Swanson and, you know, Jamison Tyone and, and the guys they added, I would have told you probably that team with no additions was probably a 70-73 win team. And so, again, people get so tired of hearing it, you know, raise the floor. The Cubs have transitioned this. It is a rebuild, although it's a pretty quick rebuild. You know, when the Cubs went through their first rebuild, it was a good, you know, four-plus years. This one, they're kind of turning it around. You know, they could have been in the playoffs in two. And hopefully they'll make it this year and it'll be three. And they're doing it in a way where they're getting 
just that that floor is getting a little bit more set, and they're in a position now where you know if if they get you know really good production from a rookie or a young player, you know Hayden Wisniewski can you know really get comfortable and establish himself as a doesn't have to be an ace, doesn't have to be a two. If Hayden Wisniewski can give you average starting pitching, that's a win. Now it's a bigger win if the Cubs also sign Shoto Imanaga and or trade for Shane Bieber, Jesus Lazardo with Miami. You know, get one of those guys in here. Get somebody up with steel at the top of the rotation. And then you just have more and more depth at the bottom of the rotation. Um so, you know, the Cubs are not in a great place right now. I know it's not exciting to see Jed Hoyer sign nobody and sign nobody and sign nobody and the you know, the sleepy Jed memes are gonna continue until something happens. But I don't think the Cubs need to race to make signings just to make signings. I think Jed is very clearly a methodical front office executive. He's risk averse. He's going to do what he can to, you know, not make big risks or not have, not have big downside risk. He doesn't, he's willing to move on from players. You know, they, they ate the last year of Jason Hayward. They are eating $10 million this year from Tucker Barnhart and, and Trey Mancini. He'll make those moves, but he's trying in my opinion, a little bit too hard to avoid risk. And I think sometimes, you know, risk and reward go together. You know, sometimes you have to take a risk to get a big reward. And I get some of these, you know, the when you look at the trades that have happened and the signings that have happened in the in the space, in the guys that, you know, Cubs fans were dreaming of, the Yankees overpaid for Juan Soto, which is fine. Again, that's a choice. Like, you want to go get your guy, and they got their guy. I think there's a reason why San Diego made that trade before – you know, the Shohei thing was done because I think they saw their offer, got the guys they wanted, and, and had a pretty good feeling that nobody after Shohei signed was going to come in with a deal any better than that one, so they took it. You know, Shohei Otani signed for more money than people expected and then sort of less with the deferred money, but based on everything he said, everything his agent said, and all signs point to he just wanted to be in L.A. and wasn't going to leave. It sounds like the Angels were his number two of something with the with the – Dodgers hadn't worked out. And you look at the glass now trade. I think the Rays really liked Ryan Pepio, who they got from the Dodgers. And again, like if you put that thing in the, you know, the trade value calculator and the Rays got an absolute steal in that. They got a ton of value back for glass now. So, you know, I'm sure Jed was probably unwilling to pay that price. And now you look at Yamamoto He's starting to be projected for three hundred plus million dollars, and again, like that's going to be a ten plus a year deal on a twenty five year old pitcher who hasn't pitched in the major leagues yet. His stuff is amazing. I think it's going to play. I think whoever gets him is going to be very happy. But there's no doubt risk there, and it it maybe is sounding like risk Jed doesn't want to take, but I'll take that with a grain of salt. We've seen so much over the last week where the reports that are coming out don't always match with reality. You never know team side or player side, you know, who might be dropping something to, you know, get a certain thing out in the media to try to play into negotiations. And Jed's a guy that plays his, plays close to the vest anyway. So I don't know what they're going to do. I would be surprised if they signed Yamamoto over $300 million. Um, but until he signed, you know, who knows? I think Imanaga makes sense. I think getting Cody Bellinger back makes sense. I think, you know, we'll see again, spending his money, but I think, the Yankees trading for Alex Verdugo and trading for um, Juan Soto probably takes them out of the Cody Bellinger you know, situation. The Giants signing Lee out of Korea, that he's probably their big addition. They could spend more. They may still go after Bellinger. But it sounds at this point like it's largely down to the Blue Jays and the Cubs. Maybe Seattle might get jump in on it. Um, you know, Reese Hoskins... Again, Cubs seem like a obvious fit. They seem like one of the favorites. You know, I heard today that Seattle's interested. Um, he's from Northern California. I don't know Northern California to Washington. You know, closer to home could be a draw. But I mean, if I had to put money down, I, I still think Reese Hoskins to the Cubs makes a lot of sense. But you know, at some point they they've got to get some guys. If they don't, you know, Jed is going to be putting talk about risk. Jed's going to be putting a lot of eggs in the basket of the young players, which might be fine. You know, the Cubs have a good deep system and those guys are coming up to the major league level. Now, maybe it is time to see what they're going to do. 
I would rather mix them in and, and kind of thread the needle with, you know, a couple of additions to help make this lineup better and deeper and then also still leave some space where the young players could get time if they really push for it and, you know, have the kinds of seasons guys started out having last year at Iowa. So we'll see how it goes. You know, this is probably the last time I'll record before the holidays. We've got some vacation coming up. Um, depending on what the Cubs do, you know, I'm back to Charlotte. Uh, I'm in and out of Charlotte, but I'm kind of back, back, you know, at the end of the month. So maybe I'll get one more out before New Year's. Um, we'll see what happens. Hopefully by the time we hit New Year's, uh, Jed's made a couple moves, maybe made a trade happen, maybe signed a couple guys. I think even getting a couple, getting a bullpen arm or two, getting Reese Hoskins in the fold would just start to make, you know, Cubs fans, you know, exhale, breathe a little sigh of relief and, and feel a little bit better about where the offseason's going. I'll continue to say it though. The important thing is what this roster looks like when they head into spring training, not what it looks like today. You don't get bonus points for, you know, you don't get start with three wins ahead by because you signed a guy in November as opposed to January. You know, the free agent process takes what it takes. Last year was a deep class of top-level guys, and they tended to go pretty quickly. The year before that, well, that was the strike year, so everything happened early or it didn't happen until after the CBA was worked out. You know, the year before that, 2019, when Manny Machado and Bryce Harper were free agents, neither one of them signed until February. So these things take time. They work on team schedules. They work based on player schedules, you know, Agents of some of these guys, Scott Boris is known to just kind of hold and see what offers wind up coming through. So maybe, you know, buckle in. It's going to be a bit of a ride here, but hopefully the Cubs get a couple moves happen. I hope everybody has a great holiday. Enjoy some time away from work. Enjoy some time away from school. Enjoy some time with family, hopefully, or family or friends. Find something fun to do. You know, get out, have some fun, relax, enjoy. Look forward to a good 2022. Or good 2022 good 2024 thank you for joining me today if you like this episode please drop a rating and review wherever it is you get your podcasts and share an episode with a friend just a few seconds from you gives me great feedback and helps other cub fans find the show you can find me on twitter instagram tiktok threads blue sky and youtube all at cubs ps plus and check out the patreon page at cubspsplus.patreon.com to help support the show As always, the theme music for this podcast is Prospect Park West by Jerry McCoy. This is Mike Waller, host of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. Every day with Cubs baseball or talking about Cubs baseball is a great day. Go Cubs!